I really loved it. I love the parallel you drew between the Fantastic Four and his family's plane crash. I love all the stuff at Sinister's Orphanage. It's just really good, and, and everybody should pick it up. I mean, I, I agree, but... <laughs> <laughs> X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Jay Edidin, co-host of probably the best-known and most popular X-Men podcast, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, and writer of the recent Marvel Snapshots X-Men issue, told through the eyes of Scott Slim Summers, the original X-Men Cyclops, who is the character we're highlighting today. Jay, thank you so much for being my guest. How are you doing? I am okay. It is it is the end of a very, very long week, so I will say in advance that I might be a little bit slower and less glib than I, I might have been, I guess. No, actually, never mind. I'm trying to think of a, a day when I would have been just sort of less generally burned out feeling, and, and this has been kind of a steady state for the last six months, as it has with everyone else, so... Eh. It's a pretty crazy time. I was asked, how are you doing the other day? And um, I said, well, there's a global pandemic and Ruth Bader Ginsburg is dead. So I'm not great. And then I paused. And I was like, actually, can we do that again? I'm fine. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I feel like we're all sort of unveiling our that question is becoming less small talk and more. Um, yes, here's an opportunity for talk therapy because I haven't seen anyone in or spoken to anyone in days. <laughs> well, and that's a great inroad too to what we're talking about today because your your response, your sort of default, I'm not going to go into it, I'm fine, is sort of what I think of as the Cyclops line. Yeah. So before we dig in, a few brief notes. First, on last week's episode, I wasn't sure whether Storm had ever met her father's family on panel outside of a cousin who pops up for her wedding to T'Challa. Listener August Prince told me on Twitter that during that same fourth volume of Black Panther, Aurora also meets her paternal grandparents, and there's more stuff on that side of the family. I will track that all down and revisit at some point. Like with many things that take place primarily outside of the X realm, Storm's time in Black Panther is admittedly just a pretty big gap for me as a reader. So thank you for letting me know about that. Also, as a few of you pointed out on Twitter, the Fox X-Men film franchise did feature another version of Yukio before Deadpool 2 in 2013's The Wolverine, where she was played by Rila Fukushima and was a lot closer to the comic character, though they did make her a mutant there as well. I didn't mention that version of Yukio last week because it wasn't relevant to the conversation about Storm's sexuality, and also because that movie did not really make much of an impact, but it does exist and uh, might be worth a look if you're a Yukio fan. Finally, listener Brian Houston wrote into the fan mail account about my recommendations for Betsy Braddock stories in episode four. He pointed out that while I suggested the quote-unquote Alan Moore and Alan Davis run on Captain Britain in the 80s, a lot of the big Betsy stories are actually after Moore leaves the book and Jamie Delano takes over primary writing duties. That is absolutely true, and I should have mentioned Delano's name as well. Alan Davis just did co-plotting on Captain Britain, and eventually he fully took over the writing on the book himself in addition to drawing it, including for the final arc, notably where Betsy briefly becomes Captain Britain. So in my head, I was saying Alan Moore and Alan Davis, meaning like from when they started working on it together through to when Davis finished the run by himself. But no disrespect to Jamie Delano was intended at all. He's great, and I love all of those stories. With that business out of the way, Jay, thank you again for joining me today. I'm so excited. 
To get back to what we were just talking about, about how Scott is always sort of pretending everything is fine or saying everything is fine or closing himself off, I'd really like to open the conversation by sort of asking about your history with Cyclops, who I know is your favorite X-Man. Scott can be a pretty polarizing character with fans, so I'd love to hear more about what you particularly dig about the character and how you personally came to love him, and I'd like to ask the forgiveness of your fans, who no doubt have heard lots of this already on your wildly successful podcast, but... Please do me the honor of repeating yourself a bit. So Cyclops was not my favorite character at first, by a long shot, largely because I just didn't read very many comics with him in them when I started reading X-Men. The first X-Men stuff I read, read God Loves, Man Kills, and then I read the entirety of The Age of Apocalypse. Oh, wow. That's quite the inroad. And that was where I jumped in. So, I mean, I guess Cyclops is in that, but they're very, very different versions of the characters. Mm -hmm. And then when when I started, you know reading and, and this this would have been when I was in high school so late 90s and then then and into the early early aughts I was I was collecting and mostly reading the original New Mutants and Excalibur series so the first X-Men comics that I was reading even remotely parallel to them coming out I started out late in reading and trade but eventually caught up was um the, the Grant Morrison run on New X-Men mm-hmm. so that was sort of my first glimpse of or my first cl- close-up glimpse of a lot of the more central X-Men characters and teams and then during college, um, so my my podcasting partner, my dear friend and, and ex, Miles, and I have known each other forever and ever and ever, and he was a huge X-Men fan growing up, and his dad was a huge X-Men fan growing up. And we used to stay at college over summers and get, get you know jobs on campus, and one summer we brought up all of both of their X-Men comics, and I basically spent the summer just reading through you know, 30 or so years of X books. The joy. It was, it was pretty amazing. Um, and we had, you know, we had the Silver Age stuff in the, the Masterworks hardcovers mm-hmm. and then, which, which led up to pretty much where his collection went and, and his collection stopped a little bit after Age of Apocalypse, but again, there was so much of it. And then I was, I was following the current stuff as it was coming out. So that was sort of my inroad to the, the larger X universe. I think that's kind of a dad thing, stopping after Age of Apocalypse. Because like, so my, my backstory is my father is an X-Men collector, has been since the 60s. His collection is nationally ranked or wow. something. I don't know. He has all of those issues from the 60s on in plastic up through basically 96, 97. And uh, that's when he kind of lost interest. But so I grew up, he bought me those Marvel Masterworks when I was like eight. and we have been having discussions and arguments and debates and fun chats about the X-Men ever since. And uh, the reason I am now this person you see before you is because he had, aside from the ones in plastic, like reader copies that I was allowed to read. And I read, because when we were, we're about the same age-ish. Yeah, I think you're a little bit younger than me. I think so, but not by a significant amount. And the stuff in the 90s that was coming out as I would have been picking it up at the comic shop or at the corner store or at the, you know, pharmacy or whatever, I just didn't like it that much. But the stuff, the Claremont stuff in particular from the 70s and 80s, it's funny that you mentioned Excalibur and New Mutants because those were my favorites also. But I really loved the Claremont X-Men. I really loved the Simonson X-Factor, although I have complicated feelings about it, which we'll get to, I'm sure. And so Cyclops for me is sort of an interesting character because I, you know, I think he and Jean are fantastic all the way up through Dark Phoenix, but because of where I started reading, which is like sort of a haphazard mid eighties moment, Mm. I'm very, very, very attached to Madeline Pryor. And so all of that became very complicated. So for a long time, he was kind of persona non grata to me because of what happened with Maddie. 
And then the one that I did start picking up again as it was coming out was New X-Men, which was coming out as I was in high school. I really, really identified with Emma Frost, which is probably a bad sign about certain aspects of my uh, of my personality. I mean, look, there are there are worse ways to go than Fabergé killing a machine. Absolutely. I mean, I've never murdered Firestar's horse, so I feel like I'm ahead of the... There has been no butter rum incident. Yet, Connor, yet. Don't sell yourself short. You never short. know. You never know. I did tell Grant Morrison once that when I read that scene where she says, the whole world is watching us now, we must be nothing less than fabulous, that it made me want to be Emma Frost when I grew up. And he said... And this, by this point, I was, you know, 28, 29. It, was a, it, it had been a while. And he said, well, you're clearly doing a great job. And I was like, thank you so much. And then he signed my omnibus, which is one of my most prized possessions. In Morrison, I really came to love Scott in a way that I don't think I ever had before. Because even when I liked him in the classic stuff, in the Phoenix Saga, I was more interested in Gene mm-hmm. as a character. And then when it came down to... You know, people are always like, do you like Cyclops or Wolverine? That was never it for me. In the 80s, it's do you like Cyclops or Storm? And I was a Storm person. They were so often grappling for leadership, essentially, that I always wanted him to go away and let Storm be great. It was Morrison who kind of made me appreciate that character. And it's funny because it's it's in the wake of the 12 storyline, which is not good. It's not, but I think I think the 12 storyline was a catalyst for a lot of the better characterization of Cyclops Mm -hmm. after that period in the 80s. Um, It was really strong. I know we're going to go back to X-Factor. I know we've talked about this a little bit. We will. I'm I'm really excited to go there. We've chatted off podcasts because about all of my Madeline feelings, and we're definitely going to go there. I I likewise, and yes, because, oh God, Madeline is amazing. (laughs) Uh, I think think the the point that we're, we're solidly together on here is that Madeline Pryor deserved and deserves better. Yes, my dream, and you writing that Snapshots issue, I mean, it's not your first comic, obviously, you've done comics work before, but that Snapshots issue where you really get to write this character who you feel so strongly about, it's very inspiring to me because my real dream, and this has been my dream since I was 13 and read Inferno, is to write a Madeline Pryor book that sort of brings all of her complexities together and does her justice without, you know, being a polemic, but just is really matter of fact and, and holistic. So that would be my dream. If anybody's listening who would like to talk to me about that, please feel free to contact me. One thing I'd like to touch on before we get into storylines and X Factor and all that is I mentioned that my father is a collector and that's sort of how I got into the books. And it's interesting, he says now that I love it more than he ever did because I, as a tiny, like, nascent gay child, attached myself to the subtext, the the queer subtext that Claremont infused the story with. And it felt like he was sharing secrets with me almost. And he's said in recent interviews that he doesn't like it so overt these days and in your face because he liked the subtext and you know he's of a different generation i love him dearly i don't agree on that but i do think that what he did with the subtext at the time was incredibly daring especially flying in the face of jim shooter's stipulation from on high that there were no gay people in the marvel universe claremont went out of his way to try and make just about every woman on that book a kinsey three at the least (laughs) yes and some of the men you know it's it's really, it, he really did some special stuff there. But my father, he was never as interested in it after Dark Phoenix and Days of Future Past because for him, reading it from an early age in the 60s on, Scott and Jean were the whole book to him. 
Wow. Their relationship was the book. And he identifies profoundly with Cyclops. Cyclops is his favorite character. And we have had many an argument about that because I'll bring up what happened in X Factor. And he'll go, that was an editorially mandated retcon. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, I'm well aware. And you, Chris Claremont, can talk about that till the cows come home. But unfortunately, it happened. So now we have to deal with it. Yeah, it still exists in that in-universe right. chronology. It's still part of the character history. And there are some some stories where I think you can just pretend they don't happen. Like in my universe, Inhumans versus X-Men did not happen. And it simply is not something I'm ever going to choose to acknowledge. However, enough plot spun out of Scott joining X-Factor that you can't really unravel it. Like it becomes too central to who the character is. Anyway, you've spoken at length in general about your experiences as an autistic person, which I think is really important and cool, and I applaud you for that. Because while it's not my personal experience, I have always lived with it really intimately because I have family on the spectrum, including my father, the X-Men collector for whom Cyclops is the beginning and ending of the X-Men. I asked his permission before discussing that on the podcast because, you know, he's a private person, but he said, oh, absolutely, I don't care, you know, whatever. Even though he and I have been having debates about Cyclops since I was eight years old, and even though I have always understood that my father has certain social difficulties and I have often stepped into triage conversations between my parents or to sort of translate for him when he's interpreting something in a way that I don't believe it was intended by the other person speaking or or what have you, until I read an interview you did about Snapshots this year where you mentioned that as a potential frame of reference for Cyclops, it had never occurred to me to read Scott Summers as a character on the autism spectrum. And it was like a light bulb went off over my head. Like, I'm not sure that I can ever think of the character another way now. And I couldn't believe it had never occurred to me. So would you like to talk a little bit more about that you know, personal read on Cyclops, because I find it fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So I've talked a lot about before about Cyclops and autistic coding and characteristics about things, things, things that have to do with, with, with the way he's characterized, the way he's drawn on panel, the fact that he's got a mutation that de facto prevents eye contact, but also keeps his eyes invisible to the reader. Mm. And again, that's, that's a place where it's more about coding and semiotics than actual intersection. Right. So I'm, I'm not going to rehash all of that. But for me personally... Before Snapshots was was a thing that was in, in discussion around the table, um, I wrote and published a, a zine called Ruby Quartz Panic Room that was basically about Cyclops and neurodivergence and the ways that I related to the character and the ways that the character intersected with my experience of, of being on the autism spectrum and sort of questions that that raised for me, um, which I will I will plug in the useless way that it is uh, pay if and what you want at Gumroad. And I'll, I'll give plug you plug anything you yeah. want on this um, podcast. Well, it's it's, it's we dubiously plug pluggable since Cerebro. it's technically free. So it's um that's a plug. I, I plug my Twitter account all the time. You can plug free stuff. Valid point. And one of the things that really, really hit me about the time that I was I was working out that maybe there was something really different about how I was interpreting and processing a lot of the world, because part of part of the experience of growing up autistic with out an autism diagnosis as a kid Mm -hmm. is that it can take a very, very long time to realize that other people aren't experiencing the world the way you are and aren't interpreting texts. And I'm using texts broadly to include like actual people in conversations the way you are. And one of the things that I realized or that, that I realized, you know, through a combination of reading and conversation was, so there are, there are all of these, you know, Cyclops is a big jerk moments. There are, there's a lot of other characters talking about how Cyclops is a jerk. And 
I was in my 30s by the time that I realized that the characters you were supposed to relate to in that situation were the characters talking about how Cyclops was a jerk, not Cyclops. <laughs> because to me, it seemed like they were really obviously misreading what he was doing. Right. Like they were they were coming in with this limited frame of reference because like a lot of the stuff that specifically got read as unsympathetic to him made perfect sense to me and was relatable to me. And that was kind of disturbing to realize that, oh, this is, what does this mean about how other people see me? Right. I mean, my father was never formally diagnosed. He had a moment at, you know, in his 40s of like, wait, 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 what's what's this all about? And now at 60, he's pretty confident that's what's going on with him. And honestly, I think it was very important for our family to realize that because we have occasionally had these moments where it's like, wow, dad's being a jerk. And I love my dad. He's a great guy. We never thought it was because he meant to be rude. But, you know, much like I myself, the one who identifies with Emma Frost, can sometimes come across a little uh, sharp or strident or bitchy when I don't mean to. I think that, you know, sometimes he can be blunt or abrasive and he doesn't, or aggressive, and he doesn't realize he's doing it. And so having that understanding where I could pause the conversation, be like, hold on, hold on, hold on. There's a miscommunication happening yeah. here. We need to reframe what's going on. And the problem for Scott, whether or not you read him this way, is that no one on this team, even Gene, with whom he shares a psychic rapport, yeah. as they are always saying, ever actually stops the conversation and says, wait, Aurora, Scott, you're completely mishearing each other. Or hold on, wait, Scott, Logan, you guys are not saying the same thing. You're arguing across purposes. No one ever really does that for him. They never give him that opportunity. Or for the people around him. Yeah. And I think I think that's 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 one of the points I'm gonna go back to too, because this is we expect to see a range of interpretations of characters and scenes from people who aren't on the spectrum, that they're gonna react to those things differently. Mm-hmm. And one of the neat things about talking about X-Men comics with, with other people who, with other autistic people is that you get as much of a range, but just with, a, again, the, the taken for granted similar frame of reference in terms of some avenues of interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's cool. But going back to what you said and that specific point of, you know, no one ever goes back and does that, that for me is the crux of what keeps Cyclops sympathetic and fairly relatable after he leaves Madeline Pryor. Mm-hmm. Because... If you actually look at that scenario, if you look at what actually happens, the issue isn't so much like him walking out is not a good choice. It's a, he, he's, he's shitty. He, he makes all of the mistakes. He handles the situation he handle, wrong. No, he makes yeah. all of the mistakes and he does a lot of damage. So I don't want to, I don't want to diminish or, mit, or mitigate that. Right. But he's also, and arguably all of the members of X Factor, but he also spends like the first couple arcs of X Factor having what is arguably a massive, massive, massive um, just breakdown. Mm -hmm. He spends a fair amount of that time actively hallucinating. There's a point very early on where he just wanders around New York in a fugue state for three days. Absolutely. And so if you, if you see it, if you see it as that context, and if you, if you, if you look at him, him leaving as the combination of that and Madeline saying, if you walk out, don't call, don't come back. And I mean, I, again, I can't speak for other people, but I know that for me and for a lot of folks, how stressed you are pretty directly, um, pretty directly informs how much you can compensate around how you're interpreting things, how, how literally you take things, how much you can read and interact with nuance. Right. So like for me, that makes sense. And the reason that it becomes an event horizon 
isn't that he does it in the first place. It's that there's no opportunity for resolution. Right. Because this happens, and very shortly after that, Maddie apparently dies. In de- well, she no, first she disappears. Correct. And then she apparently dies. When I read that interview, the first thing I thought of was that scene. Yeah. Because that, to me, that is my third rail with Scott, is that moment. And it always has been. And so when I read that interview and I suddenly was like, what if Scott's autistic? And then I paused and literally six months ago, I mean, I'm staying with my parents amid, I was staying with them already. So it just kind of worked out this way, but we're, you know, cohabiting amid the pandemic. And my parents had an argument about six months ago where my mother said something hyperbolic and and dramatic. And my father took it completely literally and was absolutely devastated and when I went upstairs, I was like, what the hell just happened? She she was confused because she didn't mm-hmm. understand why he was so upset. She was baffled. She was like, your father's upset? Like, she, she truly was confused. And then it was resolved that it's fine. And they're sitting downstairs right now having a bottle of champagne, perfectly content. But I thought of that because I suddenly, I, I can always picture that panel in my head as someone who, who cares deeply about Madeline Pryor. And I said, oh, my God, he took it literally. Yeah, yeah. If someone, if I were, especially if I were already in in a fairly rough place and I had someone who I loved and trusted implicitly tell me... Not to come back. Don't contact me, don't come back. I wouldn't because they had explicitly stated a boundary and if you care about someone and you respect someone, you observe that, especially if you know that you're the one who's fucked up. Like, you assume that if they want to talk to you, they will get in touch with you. You don't, you absolutely don't push that. Yeah, and so it doesn't make what he does right, and it doesn't make her wrong, but instead of him just being a complete piece of shit, which is how I've always read it, it suddenly becomes a miscommunication where he fully doesn't understand that she doesn't mean that. And then he does, as you point out, regret what he's done to some extent, and he tries to get back in contact with her, and Mr. Sinister has caused all sorts of tomfoolery off camera to make him think that she's dead. So that right. it, it becomes impossible for him to reunite with her, yeah, uh, whether like, he wants to or not. Like you said, that is it's it's a big fight and it's a fight where, again, he's obviously the one in the wrong, but it's the kind of fight that couples have and recover from. Absolutely. But for them, it's the last time that they ever really get to interact. It's the last time they speak until Inferno. Yeah, before Inferno. And so it 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 shouldn't it shouldn't be the absolute threshold that it becomes. No. So, so for me, the issue, the, the, the issue isn't like, for me, it's, it's not an event horizon for Cyclops, basically because of that combination of things. But the other thing about it is that part of why I like Cyclops as a character and part of why I identify with him and part of why I think he's really a standout among character, among X-Men characters is that he fucks up really badly Mm -hmm. and he does it canonically and he does it canonically and gets held accountable for it canonically. Not always, but much, much more often. Right, he's not found sleeping in a cocoon at the bottom of the sea and he didn't do any right. of it. Like, Scott right. always like, did it. People tell him when he's being shitty. He absolutely gets called out for just for all of for all of the ways he screws up in relationships. And he generally owns it pretty effectively. And that fallibility and the ability to and the fact that, 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 and again, I know this is all the product of deliberate choices by writers and editors and all of that. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'm, I'm talking about this like it's a real person who makes choices, which obviously it's not. But the fact that 
we get to have someone who, and we see superheroes make mistakes all the time, but they're like superhero stuff mistakes. Right. And Scott screws up on a personal level. Mm-hmm. Really consistently. He's much better at being Cyclops than he is at being Scott. And he keeps trying. And he grows pretty consistently through that. There are periods where that regresses and disappears. I think the mid to late 90s are a great example. He's basically a block of wood who yells. I would say almost 91 to 99. The 90s to me are a very... He's mostly yeah. set up just to be a foil for Wolverine. Apart from the wedding stuff with Gene and right. Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix when they go to the future and raise Cable, which is fantastic. Yeah, that's terrific. And in AOA, which isn't him, but by it being this alternate him, you learn a lot about who he is. Well, and the wedding stuff specifically is written by Fabian Nicesa, who I feel like in a lot of mm-hmm. ways is kind of the heir apparent to Claremont and Spirit. Yeah, he had a lot of similar uh, ethos, I would say, in how he approached the characters. You know, in terms of growth, I mean, that what you say about how he's not good at being Scott, I think that's sort of the great tragedy of, and I'm glad we have the Simonson X Factor. And here's the thing, even as someone who loves Madeline Pryor, would I love Madeline Pryor the way I do if Madeline Pryor hadn't been written into the corner that she was and I hadn't felt in my heart that something terrible had been done to some, I don't know. I think I'm defensive of her because of the storyline, because here's the thing, I may think that what happens to that character is, distressing but i also think inferno is like the peak of claremont's powers as a storyteller on some level which is remarkable given that he was very resistant to the whole storyline of gene coming back and everything but what makes it so tragic honestly is that claremont's intention was after dark phoenix you know gene is dead all right we're going to marry cyclops off to a woman who's not gene but who has some similar qualities who he loves on her own merits, which is what the From the Ashes storyline with Wolverine's wedding is sort of about. And I love that storyline. I think it's very underrated. Well, and she's got a very different personality from Jean. Like the fact that that they look so alike throws everyone for an absolute loop because they're such different Well, and initially the implication in the From the Ashes, which is that run is I think 168 to 176, is that the reason they look so identical is because Mastermind Mastermind is back and is fucking with everyone. In, In reality, she's just a redhead who looks kind of like Jean. But that obviously then becomes literalized as the story goes on. But yeah, I mean, the scene where he asks her, because he can't resist, like, are you Jean? Mm -hmm. And she punches him across the face is a defining character moment sort of for both of them. And I think that Claremont's concept, which was, you know, this is the happiest ending he's going to get. And I'm going to send him off now to be a father. And Storm, who has had her own character arc that has led her to leadership is now going to fully lead the X-Men and he's going to retire. That was intended to be sort of the end for the character. Yeah. You know, my father, when he talks about identifying with Cyclops and with that arc from 1963 to Uncanny 138, his feeling is, and again, obviously this is a very personal interpretation as everyone has with their favorite characters, Mm. but he feels that Scott's story is the story of a young man who believes that he is special, who is very arrogant, who is anxious about his place in the world, but determined to prove that he matters and sees himself as sort of the main character of the story and that over the course of those 17 years of publication with some interruptions, but you get what I mean. Mm -hmm. He realizes slowly that Gene is the main character and that he is a supporting character. 
and that he is the love interest and that it's actually her story and it's her great tragedy and she is the being of cosmic significance and once she's dead and he's accepted that he's not special in that way all he can really do is like diminish and go into the west and and find happiness as a normal person and so for him that story feels very complete and so x factor was was rough for him just as conceptually because my dad is a is a real loyal guy and the idea of scott leaving madeline really even though he didn't care much about madeline really distressed him i think conceptually and just made scott a hard character for him to see himself in anymore i think to the same extent because that's almost the ultimate in in deciding your life is what's important right yeah. in the way it's presented so i disagree with some of that interpretation but some of it mm-hmm. is an angle i hadn't thought of and is absolutely absolutely brilliant in terms of contextualizing and reframing a lot of especially the claremont run like the, uh, the that it's Jean's story and scott is one of the love interests makes so much sense and it also kind of for me, dovetails with the fact that my favorite version of the Silver Age is is uh, X Men season one, which is Jean, which is specifically mm-hmm. Jean is the protagonist. And well, because she yeah, is, she if is. you look at it in any kind of narrative study sense, it's just that in the '60s stuff, she's incredibly flat because she's just the girl, right? She doesn't get a personality beyond that, and she doesn't get to do the things the guys do. So, X Factor for me is a series that just has a completely different angle and arc. Like, it's it's coming from a very, very, very different place than X-Men. X-Men is a superhero series. X-Factor, to me, is a series about what happens after gifted kids grow up. I love that. And that's a great moment, I think, for the newer listeners. There are a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are newer to the X-Men, some of whom have come in with Hickman, some who came in with Morrison. Welcome. Hope you survived the experience. Hope you survive the experience. But um, I do the Cerebro character file to sort of catch them up on the character's entire history. And this one, apologies in advance, I always say this, but I'm worried this one may be pretty long because there are 57 years of publication to go over. But let's do that so that they have context for the character arc that we're talking about. And then we'll hold that thought and come right back to talk about X-Factor. X-Men, X-Men. Scott Summers, sometimes called Slim by his friends, but best known by the codename Cyclops, is an original X-Man and one of the most prominent and divisive characters in the franchise. Introduced in September 1963's X-Men 1 by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, in the early stories he is named field leader of the X-Men, a role that would challenge him over the decades to come. His tragic romance with teammate Jean Grey is one of the most famous love stories in comics, and through myriad twists and turns, he has remained, against the odds, one of the most important X-Men characters. It actually takes three issues for Slim Summers to be first addressed as Scott, perhaps the first retcon in the history of the X-Men. Cyclops debuts as an anxious but bold young man who feels cursed by a mutant power that is particularly dangerous and uncontrollable. Red beams of concussive force blast constantly from both of his eyes, and he must wear special ruby quartz glasses, or a Cyclopean visor, from which his codename derives, to contain them. From the very first issue, he is smitten with his new classmate Jean Grey, codenamed Marvel Girl, the first female member of the X-Men, and their awkward tentative courtship would become a major subplot of the 60s run. Too nervous to approach her directly, Scott watches as their teammate Warren Worthington III, codenamed Angel, flirts with her relentlessly. In issue 7, the X-Men graduate from their initial training at Xavier's, and the professor takes a leave of absence. 
He appoints Scott as the team's leader while he's away, and even after Xavier returns, Scott remains the field leader of the X-Men. When Jean begins attending college in New York City, Scott thinks he's lost his opportunity to tell her how he feels, but she continues to visit Westchester and serve as an X-Man on the weekends, and in issue 32, Scott opens up to her about how he feels afraid to get close to anyone because of the nature of his powers. She tells him she had already figured that out, and the two begin to realize their mutual but still unspoken attraction. Backup stories in X-Men 38-42, written by Roy Thomas, relate the first version of Cyclops' origin story. An orphan with strange headaches that have only been alleviated by Ruby Quartz sunglasses, he accompanies his orphanage supervisor to New York City one day, and while there, the sudden manifestation of his mutant power knocks a girder loose from a construction site. Firing a second optic blast, he destroys the girder before it can harm anyone, but the crowd sees Scott as a dangerous threat, and the incident is caught on film. Fleeing from the mob that forms to capture him, he's telepathically drawn in by the mutant criminal Jack of Diamonds, who senses his power and tries to recruit him as an accomplice. With the help of Professor Xavier, who's been tracking Scott as a newly awakened mutant, Scott defeats Jack of Diamonds and becomes the first student at Xavier's new school, and the first X-Man. In X-Men 42, Professor Xavier is killed by the villain Grotesque, and the X-Men are disbanded. Scott and Jean remain nearly inseparable, however, and Jean finds a job as a fashion model in the city. Scott, to protect her, pretends to be her jealous, controlling boyfriend. He himself embarks on a brief radio career as a broadcast journalist. When the X-Men reunite to battle the evil mutant Mesmero and their archenemy Magneto, actually a robot duplicate of Magneto, don't worry about it, Cyclops takes on a cover identity as the supervillain Eric the Red, infiltrating Magneto's organization and bringing it down from the inside with the help of the newly awakened mutant Lorna Dane, who has manifested the same powers as Magneto. Soon afterward, in X-Men 54, it's revealed that Scott has a younger brother, Alex, whose existence he has kept secret from the other X-Men. Alex was adopted out of the orphanage, while Scott was not, and grew up with an adoptive family. Scott takes the X-Men to celebrate Alex's graduation from college, but the younger Summer's brother is kidnapped by the supervillain the Living Pharaoh, who uses Alex's latent mutant power over cosmic energy to become a more powerful being called the Living Monolith. Alex uses his new powers to free himself, and teams up with the X-Men to defeat the Living Monolith. He and Lorna Dane would ultimately join the X-Men and begin dating, with Alex taking the codename Havoc. In a memorable story from this period, based on a plot suggestion from a young Marvel office assistant named Chris Claremont, Cyclops convinces a group of Sentinel robots that to truly destroy mutants, they must destroy the source of mutant power, the sun and the radiation it emits. The robots fly directly into the sun and eradicate themselves. In X-Men 65, the team learns that Professor Xavier is actually alive. He had been replaced by the repentant, shape-shifting supervillain Changeling, who was killed by Grotesque while acting as the Professor's decoy. Xavier spent the following months attempting to find a way to stop an alien invasion by the race called the Xenox. Only Jean knew the truth and had been sworn to secrecy. The team successfully repels the aliens, but Xavier is left comatose. After a battle with the Hulk in issue 66, the X-Men use gamma radiation to revive their teacher. And then... the book was cancelled. Five years later, in 1975, Marvel decided to relaunch the unpopular X-Men title with an overhaul of the team. Giant Size X-Men No. 1 by writer Len Wein and artist Dave Cockrum introduces the new lineup in a story where Cyclops is the only known survivor of a mission to the mysterious island Krakoa. With a new team of X-Men, Scott returns to Krakoa, revealed to itself be a living mutant that feeds on other mutants, and rescues his friends. In the wake of this adventure, the original X-Men, including Marvel Girl, decide to retire from superheroics and try living normal lives. 
Cyclops refuses to join them, believing his place is at Xavier's helping to train the new X-Men. He and Jean part with a kiss and a declaration of love. They continue to date despite her retirement from the team. In this new run, written by Chris Claremont for the next 16 years, the second team of X-Men isn't as naturally cohesive as the first, and Scott finds it difficult to rein them in. He's devastated when one of his new teammates, Thunderbird, is killed in battle on the team's second mission. While on a date with Jean, Scott is attacked by a new line of the mutant-hunting Sentinel robots. Jean is kidnapped and taken to an orbital space station, and while the X-Men manage to rescue her, their return to Earth proves challenging. Using her telepathic powers to absorb knowledge of how to fly their damaged space shuttle, and her telekinetic powers to shield herself as best she can from solar radiation, Jean insists over Scott's objections on piloting the group home while the others remain isolated from her in a radiation-shielded section of the shuttle. When the shuttle crash lands in Jamaica Bay, the X-Men are shocked as Jean emerges unharmed from the wreckage, transformed by cosmic rays into a more powerful mutant, wearing a new costume and calling herself Phoenix. Scott remains at her bedside as she recovers, refusing orders from Xavier in order to stay with the woman he loves. When she's recovered, Jean rejoins the X-Men, now the most powerful member of the team. On a mission in outer space, the X-Men meet the intergalactic smugglers called the Star Jammers, who are led by a human man named Corsair. Jean realizes through her telepathy that Corsair is actually Cyclops and Havoc's long-lost father, Christopher Summers, but at the Space Pirate's request, she and Storm withhold this information from Scott and Alex. A conflict with Magneto in Antarctica leaves Phoenix and Beast separated from the rest of the X-Men, each group believing the other to have been killed in a volcanic disaster. The X-Men escape via the Savage Land, and Scott, growing facial hair, realizes how much he resembles the space pirate Corsair. Scott's disturbed by his inability to feel grief over Jean's apparent death, and as the X-Men slowly make their way back to civilization, he ends up having a brief romantic connection with the vigilante Colleen Wing. After Beast realizes the X-Men are alive, he alerts them to a conflict on Muir Island off the coast of Scotland, where the evil mutant Proteus, the powerful son of the team's ally Dr. Moira McTaggart, is battling Phoenix. Reunited, Jean and Scott resume their relationship, and he realizes he had suppressed his emotions because the thought of losing Jean was too much for him to bear. Jean doesn't begrudge him his dalliances with Colleen, telling him that if she were to actually die, she would want him to move on. Unfortunately for the now happy young couple, Jean's slow but steady moral decay over the years, coupled with psychic manipulation by the evil mutant mastermind on behalf of the Hellfire Club, leads to Jean being corrupted by her limitless cosmic power in 1980's legendary storyline The Dark Phoenix Saga. Breaking free from mastermind's control and calling herself Dark Phoenix, Jean flies into space and replenishes her energies by consuming the sun of the Dabari system, thereby murdering the five billion inhabitants of that galaxy. After battling with Professor X upon her return to Earth, Jean manages to regain her sense of right and wrong, suppressing Dark Phoenix's endless hunger. Scott proposes marriage, and Jean accepts, only for the team to be dragged back to space by the alien Shi'ar Empire, who put Jean on trial for the genocide of the Dabari system. The X-Men battle the Shi'ar Imperial Guard on the moon to settle Jean's fate, and the X-Men are slowly defeated. When Scott's injured in the fight, Jean gives in once more to the rage and insatiable hunger of Dark Phoenix, and revels in wanton destruction until her love for Scott reminds her that she does not want to be a monster. Maintaining control for just long enough to take her own life, Jean commits suicide before an anguished Scott. After Jean's funeral, Scott takes a leave of absence from the X-Men to grieve and decide what he wants to do with his life. He takes a job for a few months on a fishing ship owned by the beautiful female Captain Lee Forrester, with whom he has a casual sexual relationship. 
Further details of Cyclops and Havoc's backstory are revealed in Uncanny X-Men 144. An encounter with the supervillain Despair unearths repressed memories of a plane crash when Scott was 10 years old. He and Alex manage to jump out with a parachute thanks to their mother's assistance, but both of their parents are apparently killed when the burning plane explodes. The parachute catches fire, and the Summers brothers plummet to Earth. Later stories would reveal that Scott hit his head on impact, causing a traumatic brain injury that prevents him from controlling his optic blasts. In 1982's Uncanny X-Men 154, Scott reunites with Corsair and discovers a locket depicting the Summers family. He confronts Corsair, Christopher Summers, and over the course of an adventure with the Starjammers in space, learns the fate of his parents. The plane had been attacked by a Shi'ar scouting ship, and Corsair and his wife Catherine believed their sons to have died when the parachute caught fire. The Shi'ar took Christopher and his wife aboard their ship, initially to study them as zoological specimens. Christopher was then sold into slavery, and Catherine was forced to become a concubine to the evil Emperor Dekem. When Christopher freed himself and tried to rescue his wife, Dekem murdered her before his eyes. Believing his entire family was dead, he became Corsair and started a new life in Shi'ar space as a pirate. When he met Scott years before, he hid the truth from him in an effort to spare the boy further pain, believing Cyclops had long since forgotten the father he believed to be dead. Reconciled with his elder son, Corsair visits Earth to meet with Alex, and invites the boys to come to Alaska to meet their grandparents. In Uncanny X-Men 168, upon landing in Anchorage, Scott is shocked when he meets the charter pilot hired to take him from the airport to the Summers family home, a beautiful redhead named Madeline Pryor who works for his grandparents, and bears a shocking resemblance to the late Jean Grey. Scott and Madeline are instantly attracted to one another, but he admits to her that he was once in love with a woman who looked exactly like her. Madeline, thrown by this, appreciates his honesty and decides to wait and see if he truly likes her or just likes the look of her face. When Scott reveals to her the dangerous secret that he's a mutant, Madeline believes that signifies their bond is real. But when Scott begins noticing strange details about Maddie, like her knowing little things about him she shouldn't know, and the fact that she was the sole survivor of a fiery plane crash on the night Jean Grey died, he begins to suspect she may be Phoenix reborn. Corsair invites Scott to join the Starjammers and leave Earth, and while he's considering it, he proposes to Madeline, who accepts. The illusion-casting villain Mastermind, left catatonic back in the Dark Phoenix saga, has recovered over the intervening years and is stalking Scott and Madeline in secret. He amplifies Scott's confusion about Madeline and Jean until Scott asks Maddie, point-blank, whether she's Jean reborn. Maddie, offended, punches him in the face. The two are then fully trapped in Mastermind's illusion, in which Madeline is Dark Phoenix Reborn, and the X-Men do battle with the false vision. Realizing something about the whole situation is off, Cyclops figures out how to disrupt the illusion, and Mastermind is defeated. Scott and Madeline reconcile and get married at the Xavier Estate, and Scott elects to retire from the X-Men. He bids farewell to Corsair and moves to Anchorage to work for his grandparents. A few months later, Madeline discovers she's pregnant. In 1985's Uncanny X-Men 197, Scott goes to Westchester to check on Professor Xavier, whose health is failing. Getting swept up with the X-Men again, he neglects Madeline in the final days of her pregnancy, even when she follows him to Westchester and moves into the Xavier mansion alongside the team. Ultimately, she gives birth to their son Nathan Christopher while Scott is in Paris with the X-Men, attending the trial of Magneto. Maddie's upset, but Scott is more concerned about the fate of the X-Men. Xavier must depart for Shi'ar space if he is to be cured, and wants the newly reformed Magneto to take over operations at the school. Scott argues he should lead the X-Men once more instead. Madeline objects, and Storm, the X-Men's leader for some time now, offers to duel Cyclops for leadership. 
Aurora is triumphant, even though she has recently lost her superpowers after she was blasted by an anti-mutant weapon. Accepting that his time as a superhero is over, Scott formally retires to Anchorage with Madeline to focus on his life as a husband and father. Chris Claremont intended for this to be Cyclops' relatively happy ending. After the tragic result of his romance with Jean, he finds new love with a woman who reminds him of that relationship, but is a very different person with whom he has a very different bond. Editorial had other plans, however, and in 1986, Marvel introduced the new book X-Factor, initially written by Bob Layton, but quickly handed over to writer and editor Louise Simonson. X-Factor starred the original 60s team of X-Men, including a resurrected Jean Grey. In perhaps the most famous comic book retcon of all time, it's revealed that Phoenix was an imposter, a cosmic entity who believed herself to be Jean and borrowed the real Jean's memories, appearance, and personality during the space shuttle crash back in 1976's issue 101. The real Jean is discovered healing in a cocoon at the bottom of Jamaica Bay, and Scott, upon receiving the news that she's alive, begins packing a bag without any explanation to his wife. Madeline, frustrated by the silence and tension that's been brewing between them for a few months now, tells him that if he walks out on her and their child again, he shouldn't come back. He leaves anyway. Reunited with Jean and their old classmates, Scott's relieved to discover the other original X-Men agree that Magneto cannot be trusted. They form a new team, using the cover identity of X-Factor, an organization advertising itself as a freelance mutant apprehending service, while secretly also operating as the mutant vigilantes, the Exterminators, and training the mutants X-Factor takes into custody. Though he regrets abandoning his wife, Scott is too caught up in the new X-Factor project to go back on it now, and hides the existence of Madeline from Jean. Once Jean learns the truth, she tells Scott he should go back to his family, but he's been unable to reach Madeline when he's attempted to call her from New York, and upon arrival in Anchorage, he discovers she and their son have disappeared without a trace. The government has no record of their existence, and even his grandparents have disappeared, supposedly selling their business and going on an extended vacation with no forwarding address. Confused, Scott falls prey to manipulation by X-Factor's business manager Cameron Hodge, secretly an anti-mutant extremist. When Hodge's true nature is revealed, X-Factor casts aside their pretense as mutant hunters, realizing the ruse has done more harm than good, and declare themselves publicly as mutant superheroes. In truth, Madeline had been attacked by the evil mutants called the Marauders on behalf of their mysterious employer. Baby Nathan was kidnapped, and Madeline was left for dead, hospitalized as a Jane Doe. When she's attacked by the Marauders again, she calls the X-Men for help, and begins aiding them on their missions. Scott and Jean learn that Maddie's alive when they see her and the X-Men sacrifice their lives on national television to stop the cosmic being called the Adversary in Dallas. Maddie's final message is a plea for Scott to find and rescue their son. Unbeknownst to X-Factor, Madeline and the X-Men are resurrected by the Omniversal Guardian Roma and begin operating undercover in Australia. Scott and Jean eventually track down baby Nathan in a laboratory beneath the orphanage in Nebraska where Scott was raised, only to watch as he is kidnapped by demons. These creatures serve Madeline, who has made a deal with the powerful demon Sim and Nastir to recover her child. In the 1989 franchise-wide event Inferno, Nastir unleashes the demons of Limbo on Manhattan, having corrupted Maddie into the demon sorceress called the Goblin Queen. It's revealed that Madeline Pryor is a clone of Jean Grey, created by the evil mutant geneticist Mr. Sinister, the employer of the Marauders, and the operator of the orphanage where Scott grew up and had been subjected to countless experiments. Animated by a shard of the Phoenix Force after Phoenix died on the moon, Maddie was used by Sinister to complete a eugenic experiment he had thought lost to him crossbreeding the Summers and Grey bloodlines to produce a powerful mutant child. 
This revelation has driven Madeline insane, and she attempts to mystically sacrifice baby Nathan to end the world. When this fails, she launches a suicide attack, trapping Jean in a telepathic link-up in an effort to kill them both. Jean ultimately survives, absorbing Madeline's memories and the piece of her psyche the Phoenix Force had stolen to give Maddie life. Scott, powered up by his brother Alex's energies, uses his optic blast to apparently kill Mr. Sinister and avenge Madeline. In 1990's X-Factor Annual No. 5, Scott and Jean learn that Rachel Summers, part of the newer superhero team Excalibur, is their daughter from the future of an alternate timeline. They have been busy raising baby Nathan, who's removed from the picture as the initial run of X-Factor draws to a close. The villain Apocalypse infects Scott's son with a terminal techno-organic virus. The only way he can be saved is by entrusting him to a woman called Ascani, a time traveler who promises Scott she can cure Nathan by taking him 2,000 years into the future. They will, however, be unable to return, and Scott, seeing no choice, surrenders his baby to an uncertain fate. In the 1991 relaunch of the X-Men, the X-Men and X-Factor teams combine once more into one group, with Cyclops leading one squad of X-Men, the Blue Team, and Storm leading the other, the Gold Team. The name X-Factor is adopted by Scott's brother Alex and his girlfriend Lorna, who start a government-sponsored team to act as liaisons between the public and mutant kind. In the 1994 franchise-wide event Executioner's Song, Cable, the grizzled leader of the new team X-Force, is revealed to be baby Nathan Christopher Summers, who grew up in the far future and traveled back in time. His evil twin, it's complicated, the time-traveling terrorist called Strife, attempts to assassinate Charles Xavier with the techno-organic virus. Strife claims that he's Nathan and that Cable is an imperfect clone, and because Cable has lots of metal parts, it all sort of seems pretty plausible. By the end of the event, Cable and Strife are both believed dead after they fall into the time stream, and Scott loses his son for a second time. Taking a leave of absence from the X-Men to grieve, Scott visits his grandparents in Alaska, where he's approached by Mr. Sinister. Sinister implies that there are more than two Summers brothers, leaving Scott shocked and confused. When Cable resurfaces, Scott learns that Strife had lied, and Strife was the clone. Cable is indeed Nathan. And though it's awkward that he's now older than his own father, the two begin to bond. Jean, who has refused proposals of marriage from Scott up to this point, bothered by the memory she's absorbed of both Phoenix and Madeline accepting his other proposals, turns the tables on him and proposes to him herself. Scott and Jean marry in 1994's X-Men 30, and Rachel Summers is delighted that the future that creates her might be coming to pass. On their honeymoon, Jean and Scott have their consciousnesses pulled 2,000 years into the future by an elderly version of Rachel. In the miniseries The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, Scott and Jean spend 12 years in the far future, living under aliases and raising baby Nathan. They are returned to the moment they left when the future Rachel dies of old age, Cable never having known that his adoptive parents were secretly Scott and Jean. The three reunite as a family in the present. Then Onslaught happens. Onslaught is dumb. I don't know. Google it if you want. After some other stuff that isn't super important, in 2000 comes the franchise-wide event, The Twelve. Scott and Jean are revealed to be two of the titular Twelve, a group of mutants prophesied to defeat the ancient evil Apocalypse. In reality, Apocalypse had created this prophecy himself, for the purposes of luring the Twelve together and using their combined power to make himself omnipotent. The X-Men foil Apocalypse's plans, but Scott is forced to sacrifice himself to prevent Apocalypse from possessing the body of Nate Grey, an alternate version of Cable from the Age of Apocalypse reality, don't worry about it right now. Merged body and soul with Apocalypse, Cyclops disappears. In the miniseries The Search for Cyclops, the X-Men find the amnesiac Scott, and Cable manages to free him from Apocalypse's influence, apparently slaying the immortal mutant. 
Scott is left traumatized by his time merged with an ancient evil, and his personality grows colder and harder. This puts a strain on his marriage to Jean, leading into the 2001 relaunch New X-Men by Grant Morrison. In New X-Men, Scott and Jean struggle with the revelation of the Xavier School's secret nature to the whole world by the villain Cassandra Nova, and also with Jean's reconnection to the Phoenix Force. Their marital troubles deepen, and Scott embarks on a telepathic affair with their teammate Emma Frost, the White Queen, excusing himself by insisting that they're only sharing thoughts rather than actual sex. When Jean violates Emma's mind to find proof she and Scott are sleeping together, Scott demands Jean read him instead. She finds that Scott and Emma have indeed not had a physical relationship, whatever the inappropriate nature of their emotional affair. Scott, disgusted with Jean and with himself, quits the X-Men and goes on a drunken road trip. When he returns to New York, Magneto and a new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants have taken over the city. Magneto, addicted to the power-boosting and brain-destroying drug, Kick, kills Jean in battle before being executed in turn by Wolverine. This Magneto, one should note, was immediately retconned by Marvel into an imposter. At Jean's grave, Emma tries to convince Scott to lead the Xavier School into a new era with her. He refuses, and the final arc of New X-Men, Here Comes Tomorrow, depicts the dystopian future created by that choice. Jean, awakening as the Phoenix in this distant era, erases the bad timeline by psychically encouraging Scott, in the past, to accept Emma's offer and allow himself to be happy. Scott and Emma kiss for the first time in real physical space, and together they become co-headmasters at Xavier's. After the 2005 company-wide event House of M, an event called the Decimation reduces the mutant population to roughly 200 people. Scrambling to protect their now tiny species, Scott and Emma eventually establish the mutant haven Utopia in the Pacific Ocean. There they lead the majority of the mutant race until the 2011 event Schism, when a conflict between Cyclops and Wolverine leads some mutants to leave Utopia. This leads into the 2012 event Avengers vs. X-Men, in which the Phoenix Force returns to Earth and is split into five pieces, which possess five mutants on Utopia. Scott and Emma are two of the hosts, and Scott is corrupted by the overwhelming power as Jean once was. Becoming a Dark Phoenix himself, Scott ruins his relationship with Emma and, more dramatically, murders his father figure Charles Xavier for defying him. When the Phoenix Force is dispersed, Scott is aghast at what he has done. This leads into the all-new X-Men era under writer Brian Michael Bendis, where Scott and Emma break out of prison and become fugitives, joining forces with Magneto to find and train new mutants who have had their powers awakened in the wake of the Phoenix Incident. Scott adopts a more radical political approach, closer in ethos to Magneto's than to Xavier's, and in an effort to convince him that he's in error, Hank McCoy, the original X-Men beast, pulls teenage versions of the 60s X-Men forward in time to show Scott how far he's fallen. It's really confusing, and I'm not going to get into it in detail, but basically, for a while there are two Cyclopses, or Cyclopes, if we want to get Greek with it, one the adult version and one a teenager who is horrified by his future self. This status quo lasts for a while, because Beast finds he's unable to return the teenage original X-Men to their own time. The adult Cyclops is ultimately killed in the 2016 event Death of X, which sets up Inhumans vs. X-Men, and listen, if you've been following this podcast, you know I'm going to skip. He gets better in any event, and the teen Cyclops gets sent back to the past eventually. Oh god, I almost forgot. There was this whole thing called Deadly Genesis in 2006, where the third Summers brother was revealed. His name is Gabriel, and he grew up among the Shi'ar, and his codename is Vulcan, and Xavier erased Scott's memories of him. And honestly, this segment is running so long, you guys, and you don't really want or need to know about Vulcan. Trust me. 
In the 2019 soft reboot Dawn of X by writer Jonathan Hickman, Cyclops is named Captain Commander of the new sovereign mutant nation on the living island Krakoa. Essentially the leader of Krakoa's armed forces, he does not take a seat on the ruling Quiet Council, preferring as ever to lead in the field. Establishing a home called Summer House on the moon, in the place where Dark Phoenix died, Scott finally brings his family together, including a resurrected Jean Grey, and, weirdly, Wolverine who lives with Scott and Jean in a set of three bedrooms with adjoining doors. Yes, you heard that right. This heavily implied polyamorous bisexual Cyclops is the best Cyclops we've had in a long time, in my opinion, and getting spun around in his moon house like a lazy Susan by Jean and Logan seems to have made him more chilled out and confident than he's been in decades. I'm excited to see where the character goes from here, and hopefully to get a few glimpses at what must be a big, big bet. X-Men, X-Men. Well, that was uh, a journey. I hope you're still with us, and I hope that you perhaps have more uh, appreciation for this divisive character than you have before, possibly. I know that people who love him really love him, but then every time I mention him, people are just like, ugh, Cyclops. And I'm like, but there's there's a lot there. So I think a huge factor in that, and I'm, this isn't an X-factor segue, I promise I will not make that pun, but is, is age, and specifically point of entry. Because something I've realized with, talking talking with friends is that like i've got friends who hate cyclops like mm -hmm. and but we have the same favorite cyclops moments and the difference is whether we came in through the comics or the cartoon great point yeah because if you come in through the cartoon cyclops is a block of wood and he's boring and he mostly just goes stand down wolverine yeah great voice actor flat character and i would say honestly i've i've said on previous episodes and i do believe this is true that the class of students that you come in with when you start reading the X-Men are often the characters you're most attached oh, to. So yeah. they're, you know, for me, the classic New Mutants lineup is everything and the Australian team of X-Men and like all of those 80s characters that I really love. The original team of Excalibur, those are like my real, those are my people. Mm -hmm. Like Opaluna Saturnine being back is one of the most exciting things that has ever happened to me in my life. The fact that I get to explain now to people every day on Twitter all about Opaluna Saturnine is like, if you told me that at 12, I'd be like, you're kidding me. And I think that for character uh, interpretations, it's similar. Like my father really appreciated the episode on Emma Frost because he stopped reading around 96, 97. And so he never got to Morrison. Yeah. Well, and he wouldn't have he wouldn't have gotten a lot of her in Generation X either, which is I think no. the point where a lot of people who came in before Morrison but who are specifically really big Emma Frost fans kind of got their sense of her as a character. Yeah, and I wasn't super into Gen X, although Monet has become one of my favorite characters over the years, but I wasn't that into Gen X when it was coming out, but that's another example of like the people who came in with Gen X, those characters are their babies. And then there are people who love the newer class that I have no real attachment to with, you know, Pixie and X-23 and Surge and Elixir and all those people. And I, I do think that similarly, if you came into the comics, whether it's through the cartoon or the comics in the 90s, you don't like Cyclops. Yeah. And I think that yeah. if you came into the comics in Morrison onward, you often do like Cyclops. I feel like the people who... This is, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be mean and divisive and you're going to get, you're going to get angry messages about this, but that's fine. Um, I'm going to say the people who like 90s Cyclops are the same people who have wanted to be cops since they were five. Like they're people who like him because he's, he has destructive powers and he's in a position of authority. It's funny because he's not very good at being a superhero and he never yeah. is. And that's sort of Cyclops's whole issue, right? 
except in the 90s, and this is one thing that I, I don't know, I like Nassiez a lot, but I do feel like he leaned into this in a way that Claremont never really had. With Claremont, it was that Scott was the leader because, of course, he's the leader. And then Storm turns out to be a much better leader, so Storm should be the leader. In the 90s, when it was the blue team and the gold team, it always felt to me like Scott was sort of the classic hero, was sort of held up as like the Superman-type character. And he's not at all. Which he's not at all. And then... and. And I particularly resented it because the whole time I'm like, really? Well, that'd be news to Madeline Pryor. Well, and Superman is Superman is like so well adjusted. Superman that's Superman's most important power is his social skills. Yes. That's the thing, is because in the nineties there was this emphasis on anti-heroes mm-hmm. and edgy stuff, it was all sort of born out of Dark Knight Rises and Watchmen and all that. Suddenly every comic needed to be that deconstruction of the of the superhero instead of those being interesting works that were meant to comment on regular superheroes. And so Wolverine becomes the star of the book. And the way you build up how cool Wolverine is is you you have someone is playing making the straight Cyclops man a drip. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's particularly true on the cartoon, especially once you have Gambit in the mix. Mm. Also, I think of the 90s as like the Gambit decade. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a huge Gambit person. I've grown to appreciate Gambit, but at the time I was just kind of like, I was, I was really hot and cold with Gambit for a very long time before I saw the pattern to it, which is that I tend to like Gambit when he's being written by women. I think that's absolutely true. Actually, I was just saying that to Teeny Howard, that I love the way she writes Gambit and Rogue. And in the nineties, I hated them as a couple and thought that he was dragging her down as a character constantly. Yeah. Like Marjorie Lou's Gambit is amazing. And interesting yeah. and fantastic and one of my favorite characters. And, like, Gambit on the cartoon, especially the episodes that are written by an actual, like, pickup artist author? No, he's awful. He's the worst. Woof. I hate him. Yeah. But so Cyclops was, like, yeah, the Boy Scout kind of drip character that Wolverine and Gambit get to be cool guys in contrast to you. Or, like, sexy ninja Psylocke is going to tempt him because she's sexy and he's such a stick in the mud. Like, that's sort of... I feel like how he was characterized. And Storm, meanwhile, despite being the leader of the other team, gets sort of sublimated to all of that. I don't, I I can't think of a single Storm story in the 90s that's enormously memorable. I think the Psylocke trying to seduce a mark is hilarious. It is. Um, For reasons that are largely aren't the ones intended, but mostly because he so clearly has absolutely no idea what to do with it. And eventually just panics and runs off to Alaska because to avoid awkward conversations. Yes. So one of one of the things I, I, I was talking about Cyclops and sort of character evolution. And I feel like the, the era we're talking about just sort of not even erased or stopped that so much as just created an entirely different version of the character or a different role that they just sort of slotted the character into and it was the role that was being mm-hmm. not the character. But this is something too that, that I think connects with the way that your dad reads Cyclops, especially early on, and the way that differs from the way I do. Because I think a lot of Cyclops' evolution as a character is about his relationship with Charles Xavier and specifically starting to challenge and question him. Absolutely. My favorite scene in the Dark Phoenix saga, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, is the scene where it's while Emma and Xavier are sort of competing over who's going to recruit Kitty Pride. And Carmine, Kitty's father, suddenly decides she should go to Xavier's. And Scott's like, what just happened? And Jean's like, oh, Scott, I telepathically altered his opinion with my psionic powers. The professor and I do that all the time. And Scott and Aurora, actually, are both extremely disquieted by that. 
But for Scott, it's clearly like Aurora's just like, she's been a little off lately, hasn't she? Like, I'm a little concerned. But for Scott, I mean, he turns sort of directly to the reader in despair because it's this moment of realization. And Xavier's been doing this since X-Men 2 in 1963. Xavier has taught Jean that their powers are to be used to manipulate and change the people around them, however they see fit, however will suit their goals. And the Dark Phoenix saga is really, at the end of the day, about, you know, I'm a big fan of the Dark Phoenix saga. It, it, it has its dated aspects, but I often defend it against the uh, the charge that I think it's been imitated by a lot of stories that are very sexist. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of the adaptations of it have been very sexist. Uh, and I think that the meme of like, Scott, I can't control it from a lot of sort of adaptations like the cartoon are sexist. But I think that the story itself is not about a woman who can't control her power or about a woman who is too emotional and irrational. It's about a woman who has been been given limitless power, has been taught by her mentor to use that power in unscrupulous, unethical ways, but believes that those things are righteous things to do and is acting in a rational way that is extremely unemotional the only time the only emotional things about it are when men try to impose their will upon her and she resists that is where i was about to go the difference between phoenix and dark phoenix and the things that tip gene into dark phoenix territory are always about her being manipulated by men who don't think that she can handle that much power on her own right like if the dark phoenix saga is a cautionary tale about anything it's a cautionary tale about condescending paternalism yes Because Xavier thinks that he knows best and that he's taught her and yada yada. And Mastermind believes that he can sublimate her will to the Hellfire Club. And they're both wrong. And what saves the day actually in the end is Jean's own ability to stop and realize that she's done something terribly wrong because of her emotional side because she loves Scott because she loves the X-Men and she realizes she's hurting the people she loves yeah. and she decides to take her own life. And that to me is a triumph of feminine emotionalism over that sort of paternalistic controlling, almost telepathically imperialist Xavier thing. So that's why I do understand criticisms of it. And obviously I'm not a woman. So like my opinion on it is not the most important thing, but I I do think that that story as it is holds up because I think it's a story about Jean in which she has agency the whole time. Yeah. Even when men try to take it from her, they turn her into the black queen for about five minutes before she breaks free from that and says, actually now I'm going to destroy your mind, Jason Wingard. And so I do think that that is the moment at which Scott can't help but question Xavier forever. Yeah, and it's one of the moments where you see them come into most direct conflict repeatedly, actually, even from the beginning of the Phoenix Saga. Mm-hmm. But you don't really see... You you see Scott start to question Xavier, but you don't really see him break off on his own for a long time. And you also especially don't really see him start to rethink Xavier's philosophy and ideals and what it means to to be a mutant and, and, you know, mutant identity and what, what the role of the school should be and what the role of the X-Men should be until the late 90s and early aughts. 
Mm-hmm. That's the point where I feel like that's that's one of the most important shifts as a character. And I, I talk, I will, I will eternally beat the drum that the mutant metaphor that is most accurate is one that has never, as far as I know, been written directly. And that is um, mutant activism and attitudes within the Marvel Universe as parallel to the evolution of social attitudes and approaches towards disability, disability politics, and disability activism. Because the shift from Xavier to then Cyclops coming out in the, of the late 90s, early to mid-aughts and where he goes, exactly parallels the shift from medical to social models of disability and then to radical disability activism. And that shift is, and that, that again for me is a big part of the, Scott's relationship to, to Xavier is again a big part of, of why and how I read him as autistic because mm-hmm. one, of, one of the things that, that one of, one of the, the more common traits that a lot of us have is that we are very, very, very implicitly trusting. Right. And, and, and as much, yeah, there's, there, there tends to be like a lot of cynicism and skittishness that goes with that as, as you grow up around it. But like, especially if someone tells you this is the right thing to do, you go, okay, yes, you are telling me this, you are confident in it. Why would anyone lie, lie about that? It's the same thing. It's like with the argument you mentioned, like, why would anyone say that if they didn't mean it? Right. Why would Madeline tell me not to come back if she didn't mean that I shouldn't come back? Right. I guess right. what you mean. Who am I, who am I to question whether someone actually means what they say? And I think that that's an apt point you make about disability and it's not, and the metaphor, and it's not something I've ever enormously considered because while I, um, you know, I have obsessive compulsive disorder and other things going on, I, I would say, you know, gay, queer politics mm-hmm. stuff is more my personal frame of reference. Well, the two, the two that I really do think work. I don't think that X-Men as black people works. I think that that's a very facile approach to the metaphor. I think that whenever people do the MLK and Malcolm X thing with Xavier and Magneto, oh, God, it's really stupid. First of all, it flattens Xavier and Magneto. More importantly, it flattens MLK and Malcolm X. Exactly. And the idea that you could read any of the 60s Magneto stuff and be like, ah, oh, yes, I see Malcolm X in this is insane. They both have great eyebrows. That is as far as I will take that one. <laughs> but it also just as a metaphor for me doesn't quite work. I do think that the book becomes stronger under Claremont in part because he shifts the focus to a black woman and a Jewish girl. Yeah, and you have that actu- actual intersection. Literalize it. Yeah, that, that actual intersectionality. You don't have, you know, the world, the waspiest teens of them all. Right, exactly. And Kitty will talk about, well, I'm nervous about this rise in anti-mutant sentiment because of the Holocaust. And Storm will be like, yeah, you know, it also is bad slavery. And like, they'll sort of address things kind of head on more overtly. And I've always preferred Claremont's take on Xavier and Magneto as David Ben-Gurion and Menachem Begin, which is above perhaps our, our pay grade on this podcast. But I, I think that the metaphor of, much like Superman, I think that the X-Men are a Jewish concept. The creators are Jewish. And the idea of we have to blend in here in this suburb and be just like everyone else that is the yeah. hallmark of the 60s stories is a very Jewish concern. And I think that Xavier as the assimilationist and Magneto as like a separatist Zionist are really fascinating takes on those characters. And I think that when Claremont literally makes Magneto a Jewish Holocaust survivor who is a separatist who wants to start a mutant state, 
it it becomes very interesting. And Krakoa yeah. right now is an extremely provocative Zionism allegory There's in some been ways. There's some amazing, amazing writing about that too by by people who are are much much more qualified to comment on it than I am. I yeah. My my approach to a lot of that and the and the allegories there and that are that there is obviously something there and well and the, additionally that all of the stuff is. What what fascinates me about the Israel allegories in in X Men comics and superhero comics in, in general, is that almost always they're not exactly allegories for Israel. They're allegories for how American Jews relate to Israel. Yes, it's American Jewry and like how do American Jews feel? Do American Jews feel safe in America? Do we feel like we need to go somewhere else? Do we feel like we need our own place where we're in charge? It's that tension. It's not really about the real Israel and Krakoa is an interesting evolution of that in particular because, you know, at the risk of courting controversy, and and I'm not trying to get super political on this podcast, but I think the distinct thing about Krakoa that makes it very different from the real Israel, and I think that Hickman is intentionally drawing this parallel because House of X opens in Jerusalem, so it's not subtle, is that Krakoa, the land itself, invites the mutants to come and no one is living there when they arrive. Yes, exactly. And I think that that is a model of, that was one approach to Zionism early on. We don't necessarily need to do this in our ancestral homeland Mm -hmm. that was eventually outmoded by the dominant form. And so I'm just fascinated by that. And and I would love for a Jewish writer, especially a leftist Jewish woman, to write like a giant size about Kitty and Sabra, where Kitty kind of tells Sabra about herself, because I think Sabra's a shitbird. <laughs> <laughs> she sold out the mutants to get intel for the Mossad. Like, yeah, come on, Sabra. Yeah. Great costume, though. Great costume, but any nationalism over mutants yeah. character is always someone. I'm like, Dark Star can get lost, too. Like, all you guys need to get with it or get out. A Dark Star is probably fine. I'm just saying. Sunfire is another one. I'm like, you know, this is why I guess I really buy into the Krakoa thing. But I think that what you were saying about political evolution and escaping from that sort of trusting your father thing is really true. And I've always seen it more via the lens of like queer politics or Jewish politics, but the, the distinction between sort of assimilationism and passing and being someone who says, well, actually what I am is just as valid as anything else. And I choose to stand in it and proclaim it as powerful and important. And I think that the disability activism evolution that you're talking about is a similar evolution. And one thing I think is interesting about Scott in particular is I do think it's, you know, he is a love interest in some ways because his political evolutions, I think, are usually driven by the women in his life. Driven by or enacted or, or reflected by. Yes. Because you, you, you get, I mean, I, and there's, 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 there's always the, the Gene or Emma question. And my answer yes. is always Lee because I'm, I'm, I'm cantankerous. A Lee Forrester well, head. Also, yeah. Well, also because I love Lee Forrester it's and healthy. she's awesome. And yeah, it's, it's an actual healthy relationship. Like mm-hmm. it's not a committed romantic relationship, but it's great. And it's what he needs at that moment. Yeah, and it's like it's it's both of them going through incredibly hard emotional stuff and being like, "I like you. You're nearby. You're easy on the eyes. Let's just do this for a Let's while. Let's fuck yeah. for a bit. Well, yeah, and, then, and they they stay friends. Like there's the holiday issue where all the X Men are going different ways, and he goes and finds and surprises Lee. Yeah, but I I think that like 
Jean believes in Xavier wholeheartedly yeah. up through Dark Phoenix. Yeah. And so Scott also believes in Xavier wholeheartedly up through Dark Phoenix. And then he starts to question it mm, after Dark Phoenix. I think Phoenix. Scott's belief in Xavier predates that significantly, especially if you go with early canon. Oh, I'm does. not talking it about does. Deadly Genesis, but... <laughs> well, well, let's never talk yeah, about no, Deadly no. Genesis. Um, Although I'm fascinated to see how they're going to retcon it given Moira's new... Um, like, revisiting that story with Moira as... Moira X is oh, a yeah, fascinating concept yeah. I, I because real, it's, yeah. it's my least favorite retcon story. But now I feel like I've enjoyed the the weird fun stuff Hickman's been doing with Vulcan and Petra and Sway. So I actually would be very interested to see a version of that story that makes it make sense, given what we now know about Moira McTaggart. Yeah. But yeah, no, go on. So we're not talking Deadly Genesis, but I didn't mean to suggest that it starts with Gene. I no. just do think that He's oh, comfortable yeah, there because he and Jean are Charles's star pupils. Well, and Jean and Charles couple. are enough of a vocal block that... Yeah. Yeah. And again, Scott's coming into this from the perspective that he is generally the wrench in the gears of tranquility. One of the... Uh, going back, like, a way that I, I thought of to describe him when I was in the course of, of, of doing, doing press stuff around snapshots that had never really... I'd never really articulated before is that one of the things that really speaks to me about him, and one of the things that I think makes him interesting, is that he is generally an outsider within the chosen family of the X-Men. Mm-hmm. Like, he's part of the, this is our queer enclave, but he's not, he's still the person who's always just off to the side a little bit and never quite clicks or connects to that. And some of that is role, and some of it is just, is, is, is I think, just lack of clicking or connecting to that. But that that sort of that sort of dualism is, is interesting. And one of the things I really like going with that evolution about Scott and Emma is that they argue in ways that aren't about just defensiveness. Like they are really right. honest with each other and they really challenge each other. I love Scott and Emma in New X-Men, and that's what made Same. me love Scott again as a character, is I identified profoundly with Emma and I also identified with Emma's inability to understand why she is attracted to Scott Summers. Like, I love the scene after in 139 when Jean has really violated her mind out of anger and self-righteousness. Now, I mean, like, she believed they were having an affair and they kind of were telepathically and emotionally. But she goes overboard and then there's that great scene where Wolverine is comforting Emma and is like, you should know better than to get on that merry-go-round it never goes well and she's like yeah i'm like well aware that falling in love with scott summers is the stupidest thing i've ever done in my entire life but i do think that after new x-men you know emma is the one who challenges him at gene's grave Mm -hmm. don't you want to be someone don't you want to do something don't you want to change the world and he thinks about it and with a little prompting from gene via the white hot room decides you know what? Yeah, actually, I do. Emma, at that point, I think is is the only time, aside from Lee, Madeline, briefly, and Jean, but only very specifically, immediately before, during, and after the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, mm-hmm. is approaching him as a person rather than a, than the role. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that's interesting is like so. So, like we said, you know. He and Jean are this unit and he feels good about that and he feels good about their father figure and then Dark Phoenix happens and it all goes to shit. And then not long after that, basically Claremont ships Xavier off to space yeah. because... Because who wouldn't? Xavier has sort of outlived his use. 
Well, and at this point, yeah, it's like the Dark Phoenix Saga proves Xavier as a failure of a teacher. So the fact that they've been retreading the Xavier is a bad teacher story ever since. Claremont, I think, was smart to just move him off the page. Well, and I think one of Nisaza's greatest strengths was having Xavier come back and have it and 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 sort of reestablish and reconfigure his and making it make to sense. Adult yeah. students and have have likewise grown and changed and really have been struggling with that as well. Like that's Nesaza's Xavier is the Xavier that I find most interesting and most sympathetic. And the existence of that run is part of why, even if I think Xavier is largely a villain, I also think he's a really interesting and worthwhile character. Well, I think when written well, he and Magneto are both, you know, some of the most interesting. I mean, I think that the entire political question of the X-Men is, is like we said, focused on that ideological divide. And then I think Morrison uses Emma to create sort of a third perspective, right? a, a triangle that's like, okay, Xavier's an assimilationist, Magneto's a separatist, Emma is a radical sort of libertarian capitalist who is like a minority capitalist who is going to exploit the system to assimilate only insofar as she can exploit the system to become very wealthy and then use that to create paradise for for mutants. And Krakoa is really interesting in part because it's finally after, you know, 60 years of debate, it's sort of the three of them merging their philosophies into something that coheres together and making compromises with one another to find a sort of middle path of a fourth way where all of their best qualities go together. Now, of course, there are also darker edges to Krakoa that I'm sure are only going to get darker as it goes on. But I think that what's interesting is Xavier goes to space. Scott falls in love with Madeline and Madeline is like, you're not actually supposed to be a superhero. You're supposed to be my husband and a father and it's time for you to be done with this. Mm -hmm. And he is like, you know what? You're right, actually. Yeah. And even, even years later with Scott and Jean, Scott is always the one who's like, you know, we could we could quit the team and raise our awesome gay alternate timeline kids. Yeah. And Jean's always the one who's like, I want that superhero. I love being a superhero though, because Jean, the thing, here's the thing about X Factor that's really hard for me. I, and this is an epiphany I've sort of had recently because I've been rereading a lot of the 80s stuff because I've been doing this podcast and it's all my favorite stuff and I've had, they're like TPBs falling apart from when I was a child. <laughs> I'm so excited about all the Claremont omnibuses that they're putting out and reissuing and stuff. Cause I just, I would love an edition that's not falling apart. The way that Jean speaks about Madeline in X factor is really difficult for me. Mm-hmm. And I understand that Jean has been through a lot. Uh, you know, I'm not a fan of the retcon that Jean wasn't really Phoenix or that Phoenix wasn't really Jean. I like that Morrison, one of my favorite things Morrison did was go, that's stupid. Even if it wasn't physically her body, <laughs> it was her soul and Jean is Phoenix and Phoenix is Jean. Don't mistake that for a minute. Because I understand the, the editorial necessity of it to absolve her of the genocide, etc. But she's a much more interesting character if she did those things. But regardless, in X Factor, it's a gene who feels that her life was stolen from her, etc. And she comes back and Scott has this wife. But the way she speaks about Madeline, who she has never met, is so despicable to me, particularly in Fall of the Mutants, when Madeline, who they thought was dead, 
appears on television with the X-Men and then sacrifices her life on national television to save the world and is like, Scott, if you're out there, I love you. Please find our baby. I'm sorry. I have to go die now. And Jean somehow launches into a whole soliloquy about what a melodramatic, selfish bitch Madeline Pryor is. And you're just like, Mm-mm. no. What are you talking about? And it's been hard. For, and then what really gets me, because we talked about agency yeah. and my thing with Madeline that's tricky versus Dark Phoenix, where I think Jean affirmatively chooses things. And there's a parallel between Sim and Mastermind here, for sure. But I think that when Madeline chooses to sell her soul to Sim, it's in a dream. And that issue is one of, I think, Claremont's very best. It's an absolutely incredible, stunning, dreamlike it reads like a dream because it is one and it's, it's forming content brilliantly. But when she chooses to become the goblin queen, it's because she's, she knows she's dreaming. She's smart. She realizes she's dreaming and she's like, you know what? It's a dream. What's the harm? Yeah. I'd love to get revenge on my shitty deadbeat husband. And Sim's like, Oh, it's never just a dream. And then it's too late. And once she has sold her soul, she embraces it. She says, you know what? Fine. This is who I am. I've decided to become this. But it is a less affirmative choice. It's a different genre and structure of story. When when yes. Madeline, Madeline from that point on, like she's she's Medea. She's, this is a Greek tragedy. Yes. And, yes. and she's she's got her options are are limited by the structure of the narrative that she's trapped in. And the narrative itself is not what infuriates me so much. And this is what I realized because I reread Inferno because I was doing the Colossus episode and I wanted to reread all the magic uh, stuff. Yeah, God, that's so good. And that's why I posted that Silvestri page of Madeline overloading Sinister's machine. Yes. Because that's like my oh, favorite God, Mark Silvestri the page there is. Moments. It appears your devices have limits and I do not. What price glory now, Sinister? I won't be controlled by you. I won't be ruled by you. I won't be condemned by you. And as someone who also loves Medea, I'm very much a Medea was right. That would be my teacher. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the poisoning was excessive, but... But I get why she yeah. did it. Oh, yeah. And sure. I think that it is the explicit parallel here because, of course, Maddie, in the height of her demonic madness, decides that she'll kill her child yeah. to end the world. But what I hate most about Inferno, which I mostly really like, is not the character assassination of Maddie or the fact that she becomes evil. It's the fact that here's how Medea by Euripides does not end. <laughs> it doesn't end with Medea dead and Glauchi or Creusa saying to Jason, you shouldn't feel guilty because she wasn't a real person anyway. And everything about her that you loved was a trap that was created because of your love for me. And she's just a piece of me that was stolen and turned into something bad. And nothing that you did was wrong. And, you know, I feel so bad for her. It's the most sanctimonious, like, she she's so condescending to Madeline while also literally absorbing all of Madeline's memories and claiming those are mine now. And also just essentially invalidating Madeline as a person, which is why I really, really loved what Zeb Wells just did on Hellions where Maddie, all Maddie wants to assert, and it is her completely broken, craziest goblin queen we've seen in a long time. But 
broken because no one will acknowledge her as a real person. And then Krakoa deciding, oh, no, she isn't actually. And Alex being like, what the fuck, guys? This is crazy. And and to some extent, Alex is voicing the thing I've been saying since I first yeah. read that story. And part of, I think, one reason I identified with Emma in the Emma versus Jean was because I had been waiting ever since for someone to tell Jean that she's a self-righteous piece of shit. Well, telling Jean that she's not the protagonist. She's not always the protagonist. Because not always. You know, what you were saying, right. that she was the things you were saying, talking about Jean saying, and I'd never really quite put it together this way, but I've been thinking about this angle since you know we were talking about Silver Age Cyclops, is the way Jean approaches the Maddie stuff in Inferno and talks about her is the angle of someone who is confident that the story is about them. Yes. This is my evil twin, and it's something I have to overcome. Yeah. And editorially, that's what it was meant to do. Right. But reading the story, no, I find it impossible not to sympathize with Madeline. So, yeah. I mean, and this is why I would love to write her because I wouldn't want to write her to write a polemic about Jean and Scott. I would want to write her to address all of this and, and, and flesh it out and put it to bed and let her be something else that isn't ancillary to Jean's story, something that is, you know, her own person, the way that she was before Jean came back, when she was sort of the the Sue Dibney or Lois Lane of the Australian X-Men running their comms. And I, uh, I guess that's, I mean, I, I think that it's, it's interesting to go real Jewish again for a second. I've always, and it's funny because Jean, of course, comes first, but I've always thought of Madeline as sort of the Lilith, the Lilith figure to Jean's Eve, uh, you know, Adam's first wife, who he disdains, who, who is written to be an evil character deserving of scorn. But in any modern context, when you read it, you go, but Lilith's absolutely right. Well, and even, even down to the semiotics and the whole mother of demons stuff. Yes. Oh, see, this is, this is leaving me now, now going into sort of complicated tangential spins that I know we don't have time for about about the how how you characterize Midrash versus Talmud if you're talking about superhero comics. Yes, and the fact that Midrash's argument and that every superhero comic fan has their own argument and that it's not you can't have there's no dogma you can have about superhero comics. You can only have Midrash, which is one of the ways superhero comics are inherently Jewish. But yes, that's a separate conversation yes. that maybe we'll do as a bonus episode someday if if you're ever kind enough to uh to give me more of your time. But I do think that the Krakoa thing really underlined that even more. The fact that there is no space for Madeline and Krakoa because like Lilith can't come back to the garden because Eve is there. It's also super nonsense because the cuckoos are all there. Yeah, well, right. But they're individual people. And I mean, the question I just want to know is, is how the vote on Maddie came down. And I know why we don't see it. And I actually think... Well, I don't want to go into it because if anyone ever hires me to write that about <laughs> Madeline, I'll, I'll have Maddie and Jean hash that out on the page. Yeah. So in a new segment, I didn't tell anyone who the guest was going to be because I thought it might be a fun surprise, but I did put out there on Twitter that we were doing Cyclops this week and some people wrote in with questions about Cyclops. So we have two. First, listener Reed Lawson writes, Hi, Connor. Love the podcast. Thanks for all your hard work. My question, has Cyclops always been a self-deprecating and dad jokes type of guy, or is that something Hickman is doing to poke fun at his history and previous characterization? I just got into X-Men comics with House of X and Powers of Ten and Dawn of X, so I'm unsure as to how he's been portrayed in the past. What do you think about that? I think that Cyclops 
being a self-deprecating dad joke guy is consistent with the way that he's been written in the past, but that he's rarely had the context that brings that out in him. Yeah, I think that being in this sort of implied polyamorous triad with Logan and Jean has actually really balanced him out. And having his kids to like raise and and be a dad has made him lean into that. And I really like it. I like him and Emma as like healthy exes who are both raising their children on Krakoa. Yeah. And it makes oh, them man. feel the That's proper age. one of those spins of, of character and idea that I, I always go into the I wish um like I want there to have been the timeline where Jean survived and they were complicated New X-Men, exes. and yeah, they were exes yeah. and I feel he like was they, with Emma. I feel like I want characters too, who yeah. would have been really good exes and really interesting exes well and all I again all I want to do with Maddie is write Maddie as, like it's not about Scott or Jean but she's Scott's ex yeah. and it's something they have to deal with occasionally and they have a child and Jean raised that child and that child calls her mom but Maddie is his other mom and it's complicated so there's one issue that actually kind of addresses with that, cable and it's, it's cable yeah. 76 it's it's the one good issue of the 12th um where you actually get that conversation it's my favorite thing anyone's done with maddie besides this hellions thing post inferno is that one issue where cable talks to his mother for the first time his biological mother yeah for years and years and years i had a wallet that was made out of uh pages from that and packing tape that i got at a craft show that I, I used until it was just in tatters that I loved so much. It's just, that issue's great. And I love Cable. So that, it, he's the one like 90s edgelord character that I really <laughs> do love. But uh, to, to, yeah, to answer the question, I think that it is consistent, but I do think that Hickman is leaning into it in part because there are so many people who are resistant to Cyclops as a character who's no fun. And so I think having him poke fun at himself is a way to make the audience feel better about him like he's kind of in on the joke yeah that he's like a dorky dad which i think we we we've seen bits and glimpses of before it like it's a direction it that he tends yeah. to go when he's in space where he can actually like relax and be a person absolutely and i think i mean I've, I've always read him as a character with a super 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 dry sense of humor for whom part of the joke is other people's uncertainty whether he's joking mm-hmm Zach Detterding writes, are there any Cyclops stories outside 616 that I should be reading? Scott is my absolute favorite X-Men character, and Teen Scott from All New X-Men is what got me into comics, but I haven't heard great things about his other versions. Everyone complains about his animated and film incarnations, and his AOA and Ultimate versions don't seem to get a lot of love either. Are there any hidden gems I've missed? If not, why does it seem like Scott is such a hard character to pin down? Thanks. P.S. I was so excited to read Jay Edidin's Marvel snapshot on Scott, but my comic shop missed their shipment. Sad face. I'm sure this will be in your recommendations, but hopefully I'll be able to read it before this episode drops. Love the show. Great balance of information with genuine conversation and banter. Can't wait to hear more. Thank you so much. And uh, you absolutely should pick that up. We'll talk about it a little more in a bit. I actually think AOA Cyclops is very interesting. I think that it's a very different character, but that's why it's interesting is it sort of illustrates things about the, like if he was raised by Mr. Sinister fully, yeah. who would he be? There's, there's also a what if about that. And mostly what I remember about it is that the, the costumes are kind of amazingly terrible. Man, so there there are a few alternate timeline Cyclopses I really love, but the one I always I like sixteen oh two. Yes, God, sixteen oh two is fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's a good Scott. But the one I the one who gets forgotten, who is one of my favorites, and I will I will totally go to bat for Mutant X. I love Mutant X. 
I think it's a fantastic series. I really like Havoc. Havoc is one of my favorite characters. I also love Havoc, which is a fraught place to be in your life. Yeah, but it also has the only happily well-adjusted Cyclops in the multiverse in it. And that Mm -hmm. is Space Pirate Cyclops, and he is awesome and I love him. He's only in like two issues, but he's great. Yeah, so go find those because they're worth it. Yeah, I think that that's a great recommendation. So now I'm going to force you to play my silly game. Thank you for humoring me. And this game is pretty basic. It's if Scott Summers were a cast member on The Real Housewives of Krakoa, what would his tagline be in the opening credits? And I'll go first because I know you're not super familiar with The Housewives. The one I came up with, which is very silly, was you can try to rile me up, but I'm always seeing red. Okay, I thought about this a lot, and I, I went and I read through the taglines that you sent, because I'd, I'd never seen any of the shows, and I, I revised my original take, because I had some very pithy ones, and I feel like Cyclops is partially in the spirit of going with the, the letter rather than the spirit of the idea, and very much deadpanning in ways that no one's quite going to know if he means. We go with, it's good to be precise about these kinds of things. I like that. And credit, of, credit of course, to Greg Rucka for that. Oh, I love Greg Rucka. Greg is one of my favorite writers and Gotham Central. It's it's a dead heat with Grant Morrison's Seven Soldiers for my favorite DC comic of all time. So what I do now after the Housewives game is story arc recommendations. So usually I'll just provide my advice on which storylines I think would be good jumping on points for the character if people are interested. In this case, I'm going to offer my tips mostly on the classic stuff and then kind of let you take it away because you are more versed in contemporary Scott, I think, than I am. So what I would say is X-Men in the 60s is rough, but the Roy Thomas and Neil Adams run right before it gets canceled is a lot stronger than the stuff that comes before it. It's not always the two of them the whole way through, but that's issues 55 to 66, roughly. It's where Alex and Lorna become major characters and it's much stronger, but it didn't save the book, which was not especially popular. Then I would just say to go to Giant Size and keep reading because Scott has a really essential character arc from Giant Size X-Men through Uncanny 138, which is the end of the Dark Phoenix saga. But I think then you should stick around because there's still good stuff after that. As I said earlier on this episode i think that from the ashes which is a storyline from 168 to 176 that's about him and madeline Pryor and their developing relationship and their marriage is really good after that while clearly i have complicated emotions about it the louise simonson original x factor run is fantastic so i would recommend that and then for me after that i don't have a ton of interest in Cyclops until Grant Morrison's new X-Men, which I recommend every week on this podcast. So you're probably used to hearing me talk about it. So I'm not going to go on at greater length. Jay, what would you recommend as sort of your favorite Cyclops stuff? Obviously, I love the hell out of the first X-Factor series. I think it's phenomenal. Um, I think the Claremont run on X-Men, of course, any time that Cyclops is drawn by Paul Smith, I think is essential reading for a lot of reasons. But also some of, you know, some of the best stories are, are in that and attached to that. The way he draws Scott and Madeline, I always think of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And also also his Rachel Summers is the definitive Rachel Summers as far as I'm concerned. Incredible, yeah. Um, and That and Alan Davis, those are my two Rachels. Oh, God, yes. Alan Davis forever. That's a, that's a whole other conversation. That's a whole other podcast. He's drawn Scott a couple times really well too, though, so. Um, but 
Uh, I, I mentioned yeah, the Greg Rucka Cyclops ongoing. Um, the the Greg Rucka and Russell Dodderman arc in particular is one that I really love. The whole thing is good, but like that part, I am deeply attached to. Um, anything that Dennis Hallam has written that has Cyclops in it, um, usually under the name Dennis Hopeless, he's 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 writing as Dennis Hallam now, but those will be credited to that. So his run on all new X Men, also X Men season one. I think X Men First Class is fun and has a good version of Cyclops, um, and it's it's a good place to go if you want something that's not heavily mired in continuity. Greg Pak's run on Amazing X Men that then turned into Extreme X Men is fantastic. It's one of the very best Cyclops-centric stories of that time period. And while 616 Cyclops doesn't have a substantial role in in Extreme X-Men, which becomes the reality-hopping team that grew out of that arc, there is a version of Scott Summers on that team who is fascinating and I think one of the best non-616 Scott Summers in that, um, out there. Let's see. Oh, what else do I love? Um, I think the search for Cyclops is fun. Um, I will generally read anything that falls under the large umbrella of convoluted Summers family bullshit. So that, that, that sits there for me. Um, and you like the Utopia stuff. I love the Utopia stuff. I love the Dark Rain stuff. Yeah, I like that too. It's That's, I think, post-Morrison, the best Scott and Emma stuff. I, I'm not a big Decimation Era person, no. but that Scott and Emma stuff is really good. I like that. I like the Utopia stuff. Um, Prelude to Schism, I have mixed feelings about. It's something, it's a, it's a, it's an arc, it's a miniseries that a lot of Cyclops fans really like. I have mixed feelings because the parts of continuity that it, it chooses to go with and change are very, very different from ones that I think are core. But that's okay, that's that's a whole other thing. Um, that, and that's, that's sort of a personal read. I know we differ on this. I love a lot of the Whedon run. Yeah. I think, I think Cyclops, as he's written in the Whedon, Whedon run, is terrific. I like a lot of how Cyclops and Emma's dynamic is wit- written in the Whedon run. Mm, I think yeah, it has... I, don't. <laughs> yeah, I, I have I have mostly negative feelings about Joss Whedon as, as a larger author and the fact that it falls into the very specific non-consensual pregnancy trope that every fucking thing he does has in it. He's obsessed with it. Yeah, I, is, 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 is a real big, like... Hard line for me. Yeah, it's a good run for Cyclops. Mm-hmm. It's I think it's a bad run for Emma, and I think it's and this is my real hot take. I think it's a particularly bad run for Kitty Pryde. Yeah, I think agreed. that he regresses her to the girl he had a crush on when he was reading the books in the eighties. She's loses all characterization she'd gained since Excalibur, and I just think that it's a bad it's a bad Kitty Pryde book. So that's part of it for me. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's that's the the. T- too close to a character or too much like personal investment in a character rather than the story and their part in that dynamic. Um, Let me think of whether I am, I am, I'm sure I'm forgetting something. Oh, I like, I really like Bendis's Cyclops. I like both of Bendis's Cyclops. I like both his, his teen version and his adult version, but I especially like his adult version. I will say Cyclops fans seem to love that Bendis run. And I bounced off it pretty hard because I just, I didn't connect with the way Emma was written. Yeah. So I, I think I, that I, it's tricky. I think that that's a dynamic that falls down hard. And I don't think Bendis writes, writes very good Emma, or at least Emma to, to the standards to which I want Emma written. And I like Bendis as a writer. I just don't think he clicks with that character. But I really, really like his Scott. And I think his Scott is, is again, a really, really interesting character and evolves in really interesting ways. Um, mm-hmm. By the same token, while I'm generally with you on in, in Humans versus X-Men, I love Death of X. Not as a Cyclops <laughs> series, but because it is actually an Emma series 
in Cyclops series drag. Well, if it didn't lead to where it leads, yeah. I wouldn't have a big problem with Death of X. My issue is with where they take it from there. Yeah, where it, where it goes from there is nonsense. But like that series in the, and that was a split timeline and it never went anywhere else and we're just going to pretend. Right, as an Elseworld, right. that would be great. Is, as X-Men the end. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your evening. Thank you for being so generous with your time and your expertise on this character. And thank you so much for being my guest. This was really a lot of fun. I'm considering this Cerebro's first crossover event. So thank you for doing that with me. Why don't you tell the listeners, of course, I imagine a lot of people listening to this are already going to be very familiar with your work, but why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about your new comic that just came out a couple weeks ago, which I loved, and also where they can find you and follow you on the web. Okay, so the comic is X-Men Marvel's Snapshots, or at least that is the title under which it is listed in previews and under which you can order it from comic shops. The actual structure of the title has varied in listings other than that, so apologies there. Um, the, the line art is by Tom Riley. It's colored by Chris Halloran and lettered by Tom Orzakowski, which I'm still kind of freaking out about. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> it's a one-shot. It's set in the, the uh, Marvel Snapshot series, which is about characters peripheral characters and non-central superhero characters reacting to the rise of superheroes and especially the media visibility of superheroes in the Marvel Universe. And in this case, the non-superhero in the story is actually a teenage Scott Summers, um, who who kind of imprints on the Fantastic Four like a baby duck. Yeah, I really loved it. I love the parallel you drew between the Fantastic Four and his family's plane crash. I love all the stuff at Sinister's Orphanage. It's just really good and, and everybody should pick it up. I mean, I, I agree, but <laughs> it was it was a, it was a lot of fun to do, and I'm I'm I, the reception to it's been really awesome. It was it was it was so much fun to play in that era too, because one of one of the really fun freeing things about writing stuff set during that time of Scott's life is that it's never been written consistently. Like you take no. any two versions of it, and they will have contradictions. So I really got to just sort of play, choose the stuff I wanted, play, and not be bound up by continuity in the ways I would have been if I were in a more consistent period. Yeah. Um, so where can everybody follow you and uh, and plug your your amazing podcast and all of that? Right. So the podcast is Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. It is a walk through the ins, outs, retcons, clones, and time travel of comics' greatest superhero soap opera with creator interviews, cultural contests, publishing history, and much, much more. I've been saying that pattern for about six years. So Yeah, wow, um, you've so got that down. So there are a lot down. of episodes. If you're looking for a more recent jumping on point, I recommend episode 287, which is where our Age of Apocalypse coverage starts. And it's deliberately designed to be an inroad, um, the jumping on point and everything that comes after that. We do a lot of backtracking, a lot of explaining. Um, there are also a couple points where we've we've talked about, you know, these are, if, if you have to listen to 20 episodes, these are probably the ones to go to. I would really recommend personally, because they were very meaningful to me, episode 100 with Chris Claremont and episode 200 with Louise Simonson, because to me, they are sort of the primary architects of this, this the, the classic period that I love so much. But you also have amazing interviews with Nicieza, with Anne Nascenti, with all kinds of, of great people. So those are also worth dipping into even if someone doesn't want to listen to a whole lot of episodes if you if you like interviews find those yeah and those sure. are all, those are all tagged on on explain the x-men.com yeah the podcast is explain the x-men.com and it's explain the x-men on uh the social media which we that we actually use which is um twitter and tumblr we are not on facebook deliberately um <laughs> we, we also have a patreon which those both link to and i think that's under explain the x-men um i mostly horribly misuse twitter where i am not lasers, as in Cyclops' optic lasts, and I am postcards from space on Tumblr. 
You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can write to Cerebro with questions, comments, or other feedback at Cerebrocast at gmail.com. And there is now a simpler landing page for the podcast if you just go to Cerebrocast.com where you will find links to all the episodes and transcripts as I manage to finish them of each episode, along with little visual histories of the character that I am putting together to go with the transcript. So even if you've heard the episode, it might be worth checking out. I am so appreciative of all the kind words and thoughtful feedback that I have been receiving on this podcast. We're only a month in and I am having a blast. So thank you all for listening. I appreciate you, and until next time, Team Maddie. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is X-Men.